gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, and this is Radio Gormagon. Welcome to the fourth transmission of Radio Gormagon. I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volki, and I am joined by my colleagues in conspiracy, Gort, eight-foot time-traveling robot of uncertain provenance, Dr. J, force-wielding scourge of Karaskant, and the sort of acru peril, the inscrutable Mandarin. We're sitting around the kitchen table in Castle Gormagon, wishing the Chochos had done a better job cleaning, and thinking about our hyper-politicized, increasingly polarized, and partisan country. Have a seat. I'm good for either topic, though, whether it's, you know, charity and or, like you said, the political environment as far as, you know, working and coming into contact with people that disagree with you and how do you, how do you navigate that minefield and not say the wrong thing in front of your client or vice versa customer? I mean, I think they're kind of in a certain sense one and the same. I mean, because, you know, my, my Facebook feed is full of people who are insistent that I subsidize everything that they want. So right. we had a, a recent shooting at the clinics at the ivory tower medical center and what happened actually was a criminal who was brought a prisoner who was brought to see a doctor because they have a medical problem pulled a screwdriver on the deputy sheriff in the restroom stabbed him and then pulled a gun and then the other deputy shot and killed the prisoner, and it's not clear to me whether it was friendly fire or the criminal that had shot the first deputy that he had stabbed. But as soon as, before the even, we even knew all the facts on the, the matter, uh, one, of, one of my friends posted some sort of comment that all of the rich people in New Atlantis need to pay an additional tax to pay for more cops to keep him safe. And I was just astounded at the whole idea of, you know, he wants more cops. He didn't even know that all the cops in the world wouldn't have fixed this situation because there were two cops standing right next to the uh, perpetrator and they were shot. <laughs> so, um, you know, for, for him to say, I don't know what's going on, but I want more cops in my town and I want them paid for by other people other than me. And then another friend of mine, yes, yesterday posted some sort of garbage about how healthcare, real estate, the financial sector and utilities, which are kind of already government owned, all need to be nationalized. And uh, because he wants free diabetes medication and, you know, he knocks around from job to job because he's a near do well. And I'm just, again, astounded that the audacity of people saying, I really just want other people who have it better off than me to pay for all my stuff, which is really what they're saying. And it's exhausting because, you know, just like you guys, I mean, I work my ass off and do contribute well over my fair share, so to speak, and don't even get a thank you note. And it's worked so well in Venezuela. I'm sure you could offer to buy them a ticket down there and uh, say, hey, enjoy the uh, nationalized industries. They'll be providing you with, you know, top of the line diabetes medication sometime around 2049. You know, you got to understand, you know, you look at those kinds of things and people say you just didn't spend enough money. You just didn't spend enough. There's we never enough. More, there's never enough. Just need more money. There's a good book by a guy named um, Bill Vogeli, um, V-O-E-G-E-L-I, called Never Enough. And it's it sounds a little bit polemic, but it's actually a pretty serious book. And I read it a number of years ago. But the basic 
argument he makes is that this is a problem baked into the cake of modern liberalism is the fact that there is no limiting principle on its demands. It, you know, liberals themselves cannot articulate at what point does the government stop providing good thing. You know, like you say, it used to be the, the first guy in the, Dr. J's example of, boy, we need more cops to stop this type of stuff from happening. In the old days, you usually would hear somebody say, and I mean, by old days, I mean like the 80s, maybe 90s, um, people even on the left saying, I would pay higher taxes for more cops. Now you start to see this odd, there should be more cops and their salaries should be paid for by the bad people, which touches on another thing that we've been talking about earlier is this hyper-partisanization and sort of, you know, schism in our society where there is a demonization of the other side in the group. I won't say the other because that sounds pretentious uh, academic, but uh, the other party are wicked people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that like, it's not just, I disagree with you, but you are fundamentally morally debased and depraved in your, your premises and soul. Uh, it, it's sort of, I mean, the outcome of, you know, I think sort of the creeping Marxism and then going to the culture where Marxism was really like a substitute religion in a lot of ways. It had its apocalypse. It had its redemption of humanity through actions and things like that. And you end up then with that filtering down in increasingly debased form, you know, through the universities and everything else, and possibly down to the level that uh, Michael Walsh talks about uh, in his latest book, the name of which uh, eludes me off the top of my head, uh, The Devil's something or other, but on forms of, you know, popular Marxism, popular cultural Marxism in the arts and everything else is that you end up essentially making the personal, the political, and also the personal and the political religious. You endow these things with these moral attributes or, uh, or J Jody Bottom's book on how um, a lot of the, you know, lifestyle liberalism that is endowed with moral force like what you eat and how you exercise and are you recycling and all these things uh, rather than practical questions about how's your health or boy what do we do with this waste are we spending more energy recycling than we are putting in a landfill is a landfill okay but they, these become valorized and, and almost religious and then he shows that basically what you've got is a really really essentially ideolated mainstream protestantism the the old puritan school kind of got rid of the supernatural God around the beginning of the 20th century and got narrower and narrower until it got rid of, you know, God altogether. And now is just about good acts, but it's no less a religion for, uh, for it's this worldliness and the same thing with Marxism, you know, and I think the reactions you see are much more typical to uh, anathematizing heretics or schismatics or unbelievers than they are actual political disagreement. And I don't know how you get out of it because how do you have a, a, a reasoned discussion of, well, I disagree with you, but I, I'm not evil. I mean, you have to almost establish, hey, I, I, I'm not a bad person, reflexively. And that's crazy. And I, don't, I don't know where we go with this. I think the other thing you're seeing a lot of, too, is a, almost a form of zealotry. In, in any group, you get, you get these groups together, and they start with a noble, noble cause. They're, you know, they want to have, you know, save the, save the whales, save the environment, save whatever. But what happens is you get these groups that form and there's always going to be those one or two outliers in that group that want to take a little bit further because they want to show how dedicated they are to the cause. I think we've gotten to a point where those used to be outliers are now almost the core of the movement. And for any movement to have a purpose, okay, say we, we solve this issue. Say we solve the recycling issue. We, we figure out a way to you know, get all the aluminum cans back. 
they need something else to do. Otherwise, you know, they can't be a they can't have that single goal because once that goal is established or, or solved, there's nothing for them to do. So they go further and further and further. And I think that's what you see today that everything the, the people that for years and years and years would say, I want the government out of my life. I want to be left alone, you know, down with the government. Now I want the government to control everything because they want to have that that control, be able to the most minute form, figure out, like you said, figure out what you want to eat, what you want to do, what you want to think. And like I said, I think there's no way to get around it. No matter what you do, you're always going to have those groups and those people in those groups that want to prove how committed they are to the cause. And those are the guys that are going to, you know, the G20 today. I was watching the protest today. You know, you're always going to have the 8,000 people that somehow, whether they have a job or not, are able to show up and protest and riot and do whatever they're going to do. So, like I said, how do you prove to those people that you're not evil? Because to them, I don't think it even matters so much that you're evil. It matters more that, you know, they've got a cause to push and they've got to do it. Yeah, and I, I think it goes back. I think all of you have been marching down the line of, of where's the limits? You know, the government and really when you get to backbone of it, we, the taxpayers, fund the government. And where do we put that limit on what we will fund? You know, when you say you want more cops, well, how many more cops? And where do we stop that? Or, you know, as Dr. J said, he pays his fair share and probably more than his fair share tax-wise. When you ask a liberal, how much should we pay in a progressive tax system, which we're in, how much is, is fair? They can't answer that question. And, and they never will. Because once they answer it, they've committed to something that is more of a conservative line, that, it, that you have a defined boundary of what's the responsibility of the government versus not. And, and far too often, we're, we're drifting that way where we kind of let these little things slide. And it's, you know, for the common good, for lack of a better basis, they kind of do the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness clause as a defense for this, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's not an expressed right for, for people to have health insurance. Is it a good thing? Sure. I, I think it's great that people have health insurance and health care coverage. Um, you know, when, when we tie back to the previous podcast that you guys did, but it's, you keep extending and we're going to be overextended. I would almost argue that we're already overextended. And, and that's part of what I think is causing this schism, this, this very divided nation when it comes down to it is, is I think some people on one side are seeing that this is an untenable situation that we're heading towards. And the other side really believes, like Volge was saying, that it's a, a religious zealotry in the pursuit of what is good. And, and I think what you see a lot of too is the other side, when your argument is based on feelings and how you feel and how it makes you feel, there's really no way to defend that without pretty much coming across and attacking someone else because there's nothing factual to base your argument on. So it becomes an emotional argument and like most things that are emotional, you lash out or you, you let your emotions dictate how you're going to argue with someone. I think you see a lot of that today. When you, when you sit down and talk to somebody, immediately they call you, it's, you're a racist, you're this phobe, you're that phobe, you're this or that, or whatever. That immediately tells me your argument, you have no, no argument, nothing like to stand on. There's no fact behind it. There's nothing behind it. Again, it's something that you're going by your gut feeling, how it makes you feel. And everybody wants to feel good. So therefore, if I can go through life saying that, well, I've done this and I'm, I'm for these people's rights and I'm for this and I'm for that, 
it doesn't even need to be true per se, but if I can say that and I can make you pay for it, that's even better. And I think that's part of the thing too is you, you notice a lot of people don't have skin in the game. You know, it seems the people that, that scream the most are the ones that pay the least. Yeah, I mean, that, but that's partially by design, right? Like the 86 tax reform, was, mm -hmm. they attempted to get a lot of people off the federal tax rolls for what were at the time good conservative Jack Kemp, Ronald Reagan reasons. I don't know if they thought down the line that if you do that, then all of a sudden you do end up with a population that uh, of those people who don't feel the sting and have no reason not to ask for more stuff. A couple things, uh, what uh, Gort was describing before is what the Thatcherites used to call the ratchet effect in Britain, is that everything goes left and never comes back. Or as Reagan famously said, the hardest thing in the world to get rid of is a government program once it's funded, or some version of that. I don't remember the exact quote. I think you're right, Gort or Gorty, in thinking that that plays an important role because you're the more of life that gets shunted under the government's aegis, the more things get decided by politics. Um, in a market system, things get decided by money, prices, information, ultimately. And as much as we may or may not like the particular results of that, it's ultimately impersonal, although, you know, certainly can distort a market or be like the hunts and try to corner the silver market, although they failed. I think the more the life comes under the aegis of politics, then more necessarily more bitter politics get because you fight over everything. And it's just what a bunch of guys in Washington or your state capital or your county seat or whatever, your town government decide. And so it becomes, you know, sort of let's all, you know, spend a lot of money or do whatever to get those guys to decide what we want. And then of course the left is response is, well, the way we'll fix that is we won't let anyone spend any money and we'll just let the, you know, elected officials do what's right. Well, that's, you know, as I don't think any of you guys need to you know, hear why that's nonsense. The other thing, uh, I, a question that was raised by Mandy's observation earlier of the increasing level of zealotry, which I think derives partially from this, um, and the fact that the zealots now seem more in the mainstream. I think it's been clear on the left for a while, at least through the Obama administration with guys like Van Jones, and even Obama himself, who is a sort of faculty lounge radical lefty uh, in a lot of ways. Um, he wasn't able to totally govern that way, but he, he governed more that way than anybody before, uh, and let's hope since. Do you think we're coming down with a little bit of the same disease, not in the sense of uh, an organized philosophical doctrine like Marxism or you know, even just a generalized welfare statism you know, becoming a driving factor, but do you think that, I would have said this before you know, the last not the election, but even the campaign in the election, has the tone on the right changed in a way that makes you think we may increasingly suffer from this problem that our own policies may get pushed more and more into the sort of cloud cuckoo land of utopian longing rather than the sort of practical incremental stuff that we have historically prided ourselves on advancing, you know, is that, hey, we're the adults in the room. We'll tell you there are limits. We'll tell you you know, you can't spend more than this on that or else this thing doesn't work. And, you know, those kind of boring, karate policy-driven things, which a lot of the right has lived on, uh, didn't seem to really have a lot of purchase this time. I mean, do you think the our base is getting kookier? Or do you think, you know, it's just the spirit of the times and that this politicization is everywhere? I, I would say it, there's two things. I think, one, because the left has gone so far to the left that we're actually – getting sucked to the center, almost to the center left, because you're, you know, that void, it's almost like that you know, nature horrors a vacuum, right? Where I think we're getting sucked into that. 
Well, I was at Me Tooism. I think for years and years and years, I don't care what you say, people are people. Nobody likes to be called a bigot, a racist. They hate the poor. They hate this. They hate this. They hate the other group. They want to come out and say, you know, Me Too, look, I'm, I'm for the little guy. I'm looking out for you. I can give you just what you want. You know, the joke was for a few years now, we've been saying that, you know, both parties are driving us over the cliff. One's just got the foot off the accelerator, the car coast. The other guy's got the, you know, gas pedal, you know, slammed down to the, the firewall. I mean, the floorboards, he's we're going over the at full speed. So I, I think, you know, what you're seeing is, I, I think there's a bit of um, being worn down just from the that constant attack and the constant, I don't say name calling, that makes it sound petty, but that constant attack of, you know, this is what you are, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, people get tired of that. I think what they're looking to do is, again, show that, hey, we're not, we're not, we're nice guys. You know, believe it or not, we're really looking out for your best interest, but they start to get sucked into it. And like I said, it's, it's easy to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to only have one drink. Next thing you know, you know, they're, they're pouring into a cab. You know, it's, where does that stop? Yeah, I think that there's kind of uh, three things in play on the right this time around that are different. You have, you know, sort of the far right, which is, you know, the Ted Cruz, the Mike Lee, me. We're still a voice out in the wilderness. You know, ideas about conservatism, you know, Locke and these sorts of things. Just, you know, they still have the same amount of traction they've always had. And then you have sort of your centrist, you know, McConnell Republicans who for eight years of Obama said, we're not going to, we're not going to give in. We're not going to, we're going to resist. We're going to fight everything Obama says. And then, you know, more or less, you know, give them an inch, give them an inch, give them an inch every time. No government shutdowns because they're scared. Really, they're the Republicans who want to keep their jobs. And then what happened with this election, when you were talking about zealotry, really is Donald Trump tapped into a populist, unlistened to cohort of people. These are the, um, you know, the, the, the Reagan Democrats. They've just been disenfranchised. They don't like the McGovernite Democrat Party, the Obama Democrat Party. The Democrats say, oh, you don't like Obama because he's black. And it's, no, they don't like Obama because he's McGovern. That's why they don't like him. They were sort of the blue-collar Democrats and the sort of the Reagan Democrats. And they never liked, you know, the far right because the far right was never giving them what they wanted. And then they were voting in Republicans after Republicans after Republicans. And then the ones that are more, the more tempered ones always were still caving into the left inch by inch. And then the Donald comes in and he's all bluster and we're not going to take it. And, you know, he was the most moderate Republican. I mean, he was the most centrist Republican. He, he was a Democrat for a while. His kids are still Democrats. They didn't vote for him in the primaries, for Pete's sake. But, you know, he's my father-in-law. He's my mother-in-law. Um, the only difference between him and them is $10 billion. But other than that, they're, you know, he's a mook from the outer boroughs of New York. You know, they're, they grew up in the outer boroughs in New York. They speak the same language. I mean, when I'm, when I'm up in the Northeast, you know, I would think I was having dinner with the Trumps because... You know, he's, that, he's a construction guy. My father-in-law was a cop. All these folks that are the regular folks in New York, not the Upper East Side people, all kind of speak that language. And across the country, there was a whole swath of people that were not being listened to by the Democrats because they're a bunch of crazy McGovernites, not listened to for the Republicans because they were just go along, get along. We're gonna, if we get a few more votes and we get a few more people in, then we're going to change everything. But they never really do. And then you got, you know, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee you know, up on the bulwark saying enough, but there's two of them, maybe three of them if you count Rand Paul. And that's sort of the state that we're in. 
which is a whole bunch of folks who'd never been listened to latched onto a guy. And a tidal wave happened because, frankly, a whole lot of people could not stand Hillary Clinton. So that's my take. So I was making a couple notes while you guys were talking, and some of the things that came out maybe thematically was politics as a career. One of my uh, pensions for reading is actually, I have the book right here. So it's uh, Jeff Shara's novels on the American Revolution. And give or take of whether you like his style, you definitely get the sense that the Americans, meaning, you know, Adams and Patrick Henry and, and those types, weren't particularly, and George Washington, uh, weren't particularly looking for going into politics. And in the early part of our nation, politics was not a career. It was a civic duty that someone stepped out or did in addition to their day job as a lawyer, a farmer, some sort of tradesman, as a, as a civil service to the fledgling country. And I think our system broke once it became it because it it became that self-licking ice cream cone. It became where the Mandarin said, these, these people are protecting their own jobs. And so they're willing to say, hey, I'll give you this for free. It's, it's, the, you know, it's the kid in your high school who promises free pizza lunches for everyone if you vote for me for class president. Well, that's never going to happen. And, and, but yet, when we become grownups out of high school, we accept that as an as election promise, that we have people out there that are promising that free pizza lunch intellectually backwards nation in that they don't see the difference. They don't see that this is not possible. And, and that voice where that, that you would expect maybe from the right is missing in saying, hey, wait a minute, time out. That is an untenable situation if we try to go down that road, if we try to fund all of the welfare programs, the PPACA and the other programs that they're, you know, $15 minimum minimum wage or a living wage, it's just going to become untenable. And, and no one is really out there providing what I would argue as a rational, calm kind of reasoning behind why that doesn't work and why we have to uh, be cautious of that. The one other point I'll, I'll say before I see the Volgi wants to jump in, some of this I think is by design. You know, at, at times... I am really amazed at how this country came to be and, and the documents that form this country. I actually think that the founders created a system that is inherently always going to be in gridlock. It abounds between, I think they've set up essentially, imagine a bowling alley uh, with the guardrails up. They've set these guardrails where the country can't veer too far one way or the other and it bounces around, it ping-pongs in between those over the course of time. I don't think it necessarily drifts and evolves too much politically. Um, I, I, you could make the argument that we have evolved over time in certain directions, more welfare, et cetera, but more dependence on the government. But as far as getting things done on a political platform, that it's largely gridlock with minor collaborations and compromises that is that is advanced minor things uh, more so all right let me With, walk back let me can i walk backwards through just what you were saying real quick I, yeah short comment well 
a short paragraph, perhaps. Uh, so the guardrails, I actually think the guardrails are narrower now than they have been in a lot of ways. I think, you know, aside from saying that we enjoy more libertine lifestyles than people have, and that's in large the gift of technology rather than uh, anything else in terms of the birth control pill just completely blowing up um, our culture in, in certain senses. Within our lifetimes, and we're all south of 50, but, you know, not too far south of 50. Within our lifetime, I think the parameters of, like, acceptable political speech have narrowed. I think the parameters of a lot of stuff you can do, right? The, you know, the famous things with kids, you know, wearing helmets on the you know, monkey bars, if there are even monkey bars anymore, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, the, the, the culture and the um, political system, I think, has got, has constricted as it's gotten bigger, um, which leads, you know, back to well, what happened to our, you know, uh, wide open ping-ponging guardrail. I think you're right in the sense that a two-party system is pretty much baked into the Constitution. It's it's not explicitly there, but by the force of our evolution, there's not going to be a third party. you got to pick one or the other and hope your side, you know, outpunches the other one, um, you know, which, you know, again, was a lot of people's argument for why you vote for Donald Trump, even though, you know, a lot of people had very strong reasons not to um, for legitimate reasons on the right. But so you build this giant you know, administrative state, and it, it becomes the behemoth, really, that changes us from the constitutional republic of the early days. And really, you can point to Wilson, but I think really you got to look um, when the Supreme Court finally caves into Roosevelt and allows him to just throw up all these extra constitutional, um, well, what would have originally been unconstitutional or extra constitutional agencies and things like that in the New Deal, part of his bold, persistent experimentation um, that are still hanging around in a lot of cases. You know, um, I don't know, did they ever get rid of the, the mohair, whatever it was, subsidy and the um, or the Mohair Reserve, wasn't there? Anyway, a bunch of that crazy stuff. Um, I think that's where we turn from a Republican system on some level into something else, Republic plus um, the administrative state. And I think Dr. Jay's original point about how, you know, what he calls the far right, which I think is the, the principled classical liberals um, who say we shouldn't have this in a sense because this centralizes, blows up, nationalizes problems uh, that are better left, you know, being dealt with at a subsidiary level, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I think that's the point you're talking, it, it changed. Um, why do people not go, hey, there's there's, there's got to be a limit on all this stuff? Back to what Gort said about, well, the taxpayers pay for it. We do, but also like, the government of China buys lots of our bonds. Um, you know, there is no realistic fiscal discipline out there on the federal government. Um, you know, oh, we'll shut down the government. Oh, but then we'll make a deal. We'll fund this and we'll raise the debt ceiling, blah, blah, blah. We go on as if, as if you know, as if this is unreal. To a certain degree it is. And to a certain degree, that's a, um, uh, a function of where we are. We're, you know, still the most powerful country and economically powerful country in the world. Anyway, so I, I think that's part of it, um, why you have this free pizza idea, like you said, um, and leading back to the free pizza are those, you know, student council crap weasels who make their little, you know, campaigns of like, oh, we'll have free pizza, we'll put soda machines and all the hallways. And I'll tell you, Gort and I will testify to this. These are literally the exact same people who are growing up and coming to Washington as politicians, but also as little BS, 22-year-old staffers on the Hill. These people are not the best and the brightest. These people are the weaselly jerks you hated in high school who wanted to boss everybody else around, and they come to Washington because that's where the Boston gets good. So 
Anyway, that was my not actually all that short paragraph. Apologies. That's right. So, one again, getting back to what we were, you know, discussing here. You know, the problem is, is that you know, it, it's great that we can look. And I, it was came up in the election actually. People were saying to like the black community, you know, for fifty years you've had the war on poverty, but how has your life changed? What has gotten better? What can you point to that you know has changed for you? And nobody really can, but at the same time, it's almost like that battered wife syndrome. It's like, well, yeah, it hasn't gotten better, but promise you, I, I promise you, baby, it's going to get better. I'm not going to hit you anymore. I won't hit you again next time. And nothing changes, but people keep voting that way because they think that, you know what, I'm going to get something. Eventually, you know, I maybe I didn't get it this time, but they promised me, and if I vote again, I'm sure this time it's going to come up, you know, come my way. I'm going to get what I want. Yeah, it, I mean, there's, it's one side says, hey, we'll give you something. The other side says, no, we're not going to give you anything, and it's for your own good. Who are you going to vote for? Exactly, and that's, and that's a hard argument. And, I mean, and again, like you said, fiscally, you're right. We should say, look, you're not going to get anything. You need to be self-sufficient. You need to be able to you know, support yourself, do what you need to do. But again, like you said, nobody wants to hear that. If I'm getting something for nothing, nobody wants it taken away. You know, if, if even if my employer came to me and said, no, we're taking away your daily car allowance, I'd be like, what do you mean you take that away? You know, it's not, I'm not entitled to it, but that's, it's, one of, you know, it's a perk to benefit of the job. You know, we're here in Illinois. We just had our wonderful legislature pass a budget that was veto-proof, even though the governor vetoed it. You know, we're going to get hammered with taxes. You know, our taxes are going up. It's probably one to two thousand dollars a year extra. You know, income tax you're going to pay because nobody can say no. They, the states made obligations to the unions that they knew they could never keep, but nobody cared because guess what? As long as I'm going to get elected, my people are taken care of. It's somebody else's problem down the road. And I think that's the... You know, you, know, you know who said no? Scott Walker said no. So thank you for the uh, all the business coming out of Illinois, by the way, on behalf of the state of Wisconsin. The, uh, the, the gargantuan Amazon distribution center in Kenosha is something to see. And there's no reason that's over on the north side of the Wisconsin border um, when really it's there to serve Chicago. But, you know, what are you going to do? Well, what probably like everybody else is going to do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell my house and get out of the state. I mean, it's, it's getting to the point it's ridiculous. But again... You know, it's, it's one of those things, where, where do you go and where do you stand your ground? Eventually, you, you know, you guys have talked about it's more of like a pinball machine. You see you got the guardrails, you know, the bumpers, like, like bumper bowling, right? I can't throw it in the gutter. It's going to stay somewhere in the middle. I'm going to hit a pin or two eventually. You know, I'm almost more convinced it's a pendulum. and It constantly swings back and forth. And, it, you know, the problem is, is the wider that swing is, you know, in the backswing, it comes back just as far the opposite way. And how do you slow that, that swing of the pendulum down so it does come to the center? There's got to be some kind of compromise somewhere along the way. It Abolish be, gravity. Gravity well, is, I know. A, is, a, is, a, is a patriarchal, oppressive principle. So we just abolish that. Are you cis-gravity? Yeah. <laughs> this week I identify as cis-gravity. I was thinking that being easier than dieting would be uh, just identifying myself as being, you know, having uh, mercury gravity. Mandy and I will work on the uh, anti-gravity machine this week in the castle. Thank you. It'll give me something to do. Hey, what? Sleestack. Sleestack, yes, what? uh, All right, he claims there's something in here that he wants to eat, and I think he means something alive. So let's say we... uh, break this up and I uh, will uh, talk to you guys next time there's nothing likely to bite us on the toes. Good night gentlemen. All right, good night. Student council crap weasels.